The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Today is September 16th, 2021, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the AHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the 2021 Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. We welcome listeners from all over the world to tonight's live stream lecture event, and we're excited to welcome our in-person audience right here in the lecture hall. For those of you that are listening live on the internet, remember you can submit questions for our Q&A at the end of the program by either emailing our main USAHEC email address or by sending us a note on Facebook Manager. You can just search USAHEC in Facebook uh, to send us a message. You can also go on our website, go to the Contact Us page, and find an email uh, there to send to us. Now, the AHEC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor this Perspectives Lecture Series. It's a seasonal lecture program that provides a discussion of current and historical topics critical to the understanding and practice of strategic leadership. Consisting of a spring and a fall season of four lectures each, perspective, the perspective seasons highlight a particular theme important to the study of, milita of the military profession. This season's theme is cyber warfare. So for our second lecture in the cyber warfare theme, it's my great honor to, to uh, introduce tonight's speaker. Professor Amy Godian is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Lawyering Skills at Penn State Dickinson Law, just down the street. Her teaching and scholarship focus on cyberspace, law and policy, national security law, and civil military relations. She leads Dickinson Law's national security and cyberspace programs, including an annual cyberspace simulation exercise in collaboration with U.S. Army War College. We're also very proud that she participated in the 2021 U.S. Army College, uh, War College uh, National Security Seminar. So ladies and gentlemen, I present Professor Amy Gaudian. You got it. Thank you. Well, thank you everyone. Thank you to the uh, U.S. Army uh, Heritage and Education Center and to the U.S. Army War College. Um, it is wonderful to be here tonight. And actually I see several of my collaborators on that joint exercise um, that we do between Penn State Dickinson Law and the U.S. Army War College. So I'm excited to, to be here. I, I also wanna thank uh, the Heritage uh, for AHEC for putting together this lecture series and for creating a space and time for discussion of these important issues. I also wanna thank Carl and Mindy Drake for, for taking care of all of the uh, logistics and uh, other uh, pieces that need to happen to bring a night like this together. All right, let's see if I can get this working. In March of 2018, then Lieutenant General Paul Nakasone testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee. At the time, he was the head of US Army Cyber Command. A few months later, in May of 2018, he would be promoted and receive his four star and assume his present responsibilities as commander of US Cyber Command and director of the National Security Agency and chief of Central Security. But during that March 2018 hearing, 
Lieutenant General Paul Nakasone said that cyber threats against the country had grown exponentially and that the U.S. must impose costs on those adversaries to make them stop. Senators peppered Nakasone with questions about what the U.S. should do to nations that were infiltrating government networks, stealing um, uh, data from contractors, or trying to influence the American election. During the hearing, Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska commented that the United States seems to be the, quote, cyber punching bag of the world. He then asked, should we start cranking up the cost of cyber attacks on our nation? In response, General Nakasone agreed that our adversaries do not think very much will happen to them if they conduct computer-based attacks against the US. They don't fear us, he told the senators. It's, it is not good. That characterization, though, of the US military's cyber capabilities or willingness to use them right, as lacking bite or as feeble was about to change radically. In the past three years, we've seen a revised cyber strategy, a spate of new cyber authorities, and presidential policy directives that have significantly expanded the cyber capabilities of the Department of Defense, exercised most frequently by US Cyber Command. Indeed, by May of 2019, only a year after General Nakasone first testified, it was reported that US Cyber Command had conducted more cyberspace operations in the last few months than in the previous 10 years. The revamped approach was applauded by many commentators for endorsing a more aggressive cyber posture and achieving an appropriate recalibration of the US military's cyber capabilities to match the threat. Other commentators, however, expressed concern. Concern about the recent expansion of the US military's cyber authorities, particularly in light of the simultaneous weakening and dispersion of Congress's traditional oversight mechanisms for checking such authorities. What I plan to do this evening is to explore the contours and the consequences of this separation of powers mismatch. Expanding cyber capabilities, expanding cyber authorities, but matched with retracting or shrinking oversight mechanisms. My thesis is that this mismatch inhibits Congress's ability to gain a comprehensive understanding of the use and deployment of these evolving cyber powers, while also obscuring their use from the public, from the people. And this mismatch requires us to identify alternative players to take on the oversight task usually assigned to Congress. Thus, we should examine the role to be played by various oversight surrogates or intermediaries, including foreign allies, the courts, local governments, and technology companies. I want, however, to add an additional player to that list, the Department of Defense Inspector General. I know, you're saying what? Who? What's the Department of Defense Inspector General? Although often maligned and misunderstood as the bean counters of the federal government world, I want to argue tonight that the Department of Defense Inspector General is uniquely positioned and distinctively equipped to fill the gaps in the oversight structure and to ensure that the political branches the President and Congress are working together to appropriately limit and guide the use of these potentially vast new cyber powers. Of course, I'm not alone in pointing out that cyber operations are distinct from other, military, other uses of military power and that they seem to occupy a unique legal space. Indeed, the necessary stealth that characterizes cyberspace operations 
and their potential for unintended and catastrophic harm have led many scholars to question whether cyber operations upset the traditional separation of powers scheme. Columbia Law Professor Matt Waxman has questioned whether cyber operations form, quote, a new constitutional category altogether for which the respective roles of Congress and the president are not yet established. In an effort to answer this question, or at least to investigate it a bit further, my objective this evening are the following. First, we'll start by looking at the recent expansion of the US government's cyber capabilities, examining the adoption of a more aggressive strategy, the passage of new authorities, and the revamping of presidential policy directives. Second, we'll look at the current congressional oversight structure, although it's evolving, right? And we'll identify some of the gaps in that structure and some other challenges that are unique and presented by cyber operations. Third, we'll explain the need to look to oversight alternatives, including the Department of Defense Inspector General. And fourth, I hope to provide ample time for questions and answers. All right, so let's get started with our first point an aggressive cyber strategy. The inklings of a more expansive and offensive approach are found in a slew of executive branch strategy and policy documents. Most of these occurring in 2018 between the spring and summer months. The executive branch published the command vision for US Cyber Command in April, followed by the Department of Defense cyber strategy, or at least the unclassified summary that I've read of that in September and the White House National Cyber Strategy, also in September. Let me get those up. These documents reflected a shift from a defensive-based strategy in cyberspace to a defend-forward concept, and the embrace of a more aggressive posture in the cyber domain. The DOD cyber strategy provided, quote, we will defend forward to disrupt or halt malicious cyber activity at its source, including activity that falls below the level of armed conflict. In a more recent articulation of the defend forward concept, General Nakasomi described it as an approach that acknowledges that defending the United States in cyberspace requires executing operations outside the US military's networks and that the country cannot afford to wait for attacks to come its way. The revised cyber strategy coincided with a significant structural change within the military. I'm sure many of you are familiar, right? The idea that in early May of 2018, U.S. Cyber Command was elevated to the status of a unified combatant command. This elevation is noteworthy for several reasons. First, it formally acknowledges cyber as a new warfighting domain. Second, it provides dedicated funding and staffing streams. Although somewhat boring, that's a really important part of understanding where our military power is being allocated. Third, and possibly most significantly, the command's leader now reports directly to the Secretary of Defense, effectively giving cyber issues a more powerful voice within the Department of Defense. The newly articulated executive branch strategy was soon followed by several congressional authorizations. Indeed, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2019, 20, and 21 expanded existing cyber authorities and included new authorizations reflecting the more aggressive cyber posture. Let me give you just a few examples. Section three, uh, 394A provides general authorization for military cyber operations. It authorizes the Secretary of Defense to prepare for, and when appropriately authorized, to conduct military cyber activities or operations in cyberspace, 
including clandestine military activities or operations in cyberspace, to defend the United States and its allies, including in response to malicious cyber activity carried out against the United States. Section 394 affirmed an expansive reading of these authorities, noting that it was important that the, um, the authorities were to conduct operations outside areas of active hostilities. In addition, and possibly most notably, right, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2019 included specific pre-authorization for certain cyber acts by certain cyber actors. And I'm guessing you can uh, figure out who those cyber actors are, right? So we have the authority in section 1642 to the Secretary of Defense to take appropriate and proportional action in foreign cyberspace against Russia, China, North Korea, or Iran if the National Command Authority determines that one of those states is conducting an active, systematic, ongoing campaign of attacks against the government or people of the United States in cyberspace. Okay, more on that later. What does that definition mean? What constitutes an active, systematic, and ongoing campaign of attacks against the government or people of the United States? According to media reports, Cybercom has not been hesitant in deploying its capabilities pursuant to this authority. In addition, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2019 also answered a long debated question in this area, whether or not cyber operations would fall under the covert action statute. We'll talk about that a bit more later, but in sum, the statutory authorities endorsed a more aggressive cyber posture, resolved the covert action question, and authorized a more expansive range for the conduct of military cyber operations beyond Department of Defense networks and outside areas of active hostilities. Let's add a few more on there. It's important to remember, however, that Congress authorizing these things are in addition to the existing 2001 authorization for the use of military force and 2002 authorization for the use of military force, right? As well as the president's constitutional commander-in-chief authorities. As of this writing, I believe both authorizations remain in effect, despite some congressional discussion of repeal. But what I want to point to is, is the executive branch's role here. Under the executive branch's articulation of the president's powers to engage or use force, right, including via cyberspace or via cyber means, the president may do so when he finds it's in the national interest to do so, and when the force used does not rise to the level of constitutional war. In the cyber context, this means the president may undertake such operations without congressional approval so long as they meet those requirements. And indeed, it's pretty easy for most cyber operations to fall outside of those requirements. Sometimes when we have an absence of express congressional authorization or approval, the president comes up uh, within the executive branch, puts into place their own internal vetting mechanisms. And prior administrations have done this, including the Bush administration and the Obama administration. However, in mid-August 2018, anticipating the new strategy and the new authorities, President Trump actually did the opposite, right? he revised the policy that had governed the internal vetting process. Prior to 2018, Presidential Policy Directive 20, an Obama-era directive, governed the approval process for such operations. The 18-page document 
18 pages, classified directive, laid out an extensive interagency process for approving such operations and required the president to approve certain types of offensive and defensive operations if they had effects outside um, US government networks. The Trump administration significantly revamped it and the revised policy was implemented, classified, in August of 2018 and was described as an offensive step forward. Notably, this new policy, National Security Presidential Memorandum 13, or NSPM 13, uh, remains classified, but media reports indicate that it accomplished three significant changes. First, it loosened the interagency process. That means it's not going through the usual vetting. There's probably a lot less lawyers involved, right? Loosened the interagency process, lessening input from other branches, other entities within the executive branch. Second, it shortened the approval timeline to allow for more responsive cyber actions. And third, it removed the presidential approval requirement for cyber operations that fall below the use of force. President Trump lauded these policy changes as an effective response to criticisms that the prior approval process had been overly cumbersome and burdensome and left Cyber Command looking feeble. Again, leading to General Nakasone's comments back in March of 2018. Interestingly, despite the administration's boasting of the new policy's effectiveness, it was not willing to share the policy with Congress until it was forced to do so by a later act of Congress. So in March of 2020, according to news reports, the White House finally showed members of Congress the report. In sum, the new strategy that started in 2018 in concert with the expanded congressional authorities and the revamped presidential directives were applauded by many commentators. They endorsed a more aggressive cyber posture. They resolved the covert action question. They eliminated the burdensome interagency process and they authorized a wider lens for the conduct of military cyber operations. As I said earlier, many said this was a positive change. It recalibrated appropriately so, right, the threat and the response. Other commentators were concerned, right? They were concerned that there was a need for more robust congressional oversight or oversight by some entity other than the president deciding to use these capabilities. So let's turn now to our second uh, topic, which is, so what did Congress do, right? Congress recognized this was a problem, and so they started to put in place a parallel oversight infrastructure. But before we look at that infrastructure, that framework, I want to pause to remember why we have congressional oversight, right? Why do we think checks and balances are a good thing in our system of government, particularly when we're talking about the separation of national security powers? Buckle up, we're going back to middle school or high school for a moment and some of your civics lessons there. In Federalist 51, published in February of 1788, entitled The Structure of Government Must Furnish the Proper Checks and Balances Between the Different Departments, right? James Madison explains the system of government and why it's critical to our Constitution. He writes, quote, it may be a reflection on human nature that such devices, checks and balances, should be necessary to control the abuses of government, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. 
if angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the government governed, and then the next place to control itself. Right? Hence, we, our system of government, each branch, right, is framed to have the power to check the powers of the other branch. When I talk to my first year constitutional law students, I say, think of it as a structural game of rock, paper, scissors. Okay. Again, so that's James Madison on it. Uh, Professor Bobby Chesney, who's at the University of Texas, actually takes it a, a step further and talks about the importance of checks and balances in the national security setting. And he calls these transparency rules. This quote is a bit uh, longer, but it's important to understand. Transparency rules, the idea of checks and balances, obliges executive branch actors to provide certain information to Congress, if not also to the public. In theory, it serves the important purpose of making it more reasonable for Congress to conduct oversight of secret, highly sensitive activities, and thus to be in a reasonable position to legislate or take other actions as needed. Indeed, in extreme cases, these transparency rules might allow these actors to intervene and stop undesirable activity. And we view this as an appropriate trade-off in our system of government because it provides an essential element of legitimacy in situations in which we want to have both rule of law in a democratic society and also the secrecy needed for national security activities to be carried out. Now, former acting Solicitor General Neil Catchell describes the need for oversight in slightly starker and shorter terms. Without that checking function, presidential administration can become an engine of concentrated power and abuse. Okay, so we understand there's a need in our system for some level of oversight, some amount of checks and balances. And we understand that need is particularly acute in scenarios involving military uses of force and particularly cyber uses of force. So let's now take a look at the notice and reporting structure that Congress has put in place. And as I note, it is evolving but inadequate. Get them all up there. Okay, so this is the framework. Right? And historically, we have uh, the War Powers Resolution. Some of you may remember the history of the War Powers Resolution. Right? Congress adopted it in 1973. It was an attempt to rebalance the sharing of national security powers between the executive branch and Congress after the Vietnam War. And in response to the revelation that multiple presidential administrations had failed to consult with or share information relevant to the conflict with Congress. And so to accomplish this rebalancing, the War Powers Resolution requires the executive branch to consult with and report to Congress regarding use of force operations that meet certain threshold levels of hostilities and other requirements. However, by their nature, most cyber operations are not going to meet that requirement. Right? By their design, <laughs> even, right? They are not going to meet that hostilities requirement that would require the executive branch to tell Congress or to report to Congress under the War Powers Resolution. Second option, again, these were uh, you know, also from the uh, response to Vietnam and other intelligence community uh, concerning behavior in the 1970s and 80s. So we have the covert action reporting requirement or presidential finding. 
Similar to the War Powers Resolution, this statute's objective was to ensure executive branch accountability and thoughtful decision-making while also providing an opportunity for Congress to check on the activities of the executive branch. But as I said uh, earlier, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2019 said, nope, covert action finding does not, um, does not cover uh, cyber operations either. Pause here to recognize the challenge. Those first two that are up there, that was our mechanism. Right? That was the way that Congress was supposed to get information from the executive branch about any use of force scenarios. There's a lot of other layers there, but that, those two were the basic mechanism for Congress to know what type of military and intelligence activities the US government was engaging in. I've just told you that neither of those will apply to military cyber operations. Right. So, Congress starts to be concerned about how it actually will accomplish its responsibilities of checking and balancing. So it starts to build this parallel, although less robust, oversight mechanism. And so it includes quarterly briefings, notice of sensitive military cyber operations on a 48-hour basis, um, notice of cyber weapons review, notice of the delegation, and notice in the annual cyberspace operations report. This looks pretty good, right? I mean, that's, that's a lot of reporting. And of course, I imagine the National Defense Authorization Act that is winding its way through Congress right now will likely have some additional reporting requirements. And it's important to note that as Congress was building this alternative structure, this parallel structure, it wanted to avoid a system that was so onerous that it returned to the problem the new authorities sought to remedy and that General Nakasone was talking about back in 2018. Right? an operational space that was far too narrow to actually defend national interests. Okay. So to be fair, it's very early in the lifespan of these new oversight mechanisms. So it's not entirely clear how the reporting rules are functioning, whether Congress is actually even receiving the information that it said that it would like to receive. An initial look under the hood, however, is concerning. It seems that despite the quantity of reporting and notice provisions, there is a lack of substantive and useful information making its way from the Pentagon to Capitol Hill, okay? And so while the text is heavy, the substantive requirements are actually very light. I'll throw another analogy out there. If you're trying to understand the executive branch's use of military cyber operations and it's like a thousand piece puzzle, Congress has asked for only about 15 pieces so far, okay? Makes it difficult to appreciate the entire picture. So let's turn now to talk about some of the gaps, right? Some of the gaps in the current framework and also identify some of the broader challenges that may limit the suitability and vigor of congressional oversight efforts for cyber operations. So first, as I've already kind of pointed out, the requirements as they're currently written are under-inclusive and fairly narrow, covering only a limited set of military cyber operations. And indeed, much of the activity in the cyber domain occurs in the gray zone, below the level of armed conflict, outside the commonly adopted definitions of hostilities, and those are the triggering points when Congress usually gets engaged. Okay. And few operations at this point, even under the new framework with the quarterly reports and the SMCO reporting, few operations, often by design, are going to meet the heightened risk thresholds that would require reporting. 
Indeed, in the statute's first iteration, the reporting thresholds required only that the operation be offensive or defensive and carried out by US Armed Forces with certain effects. But in the second and third iterations in National Defense Authorization Act uh, for 2020 and 2021, that definition was narrowed. Right? And so we're now at a point where very few operations are going to fall under the reporting requirements. This under-inclusive gap means that Congress will not receive information about most cyber operations, nor be able to assess their legality or their efficacy in a timely manner. Rather, this important information will not find its way to Congress, if at all, until one of the quarterly orally briefings or the annual written report, often too late to correct or respond to operations with possibly calamitous or far-reaching effects. Second gap, lacking legal interpretations, right? What legal interpretations has the executive branch adopted with these new authorities? Is the department interpreting the authorities broadly, the authorizing ones, and then the reporting ones narrowly? What activities, as I said, other than election interference, are gonna justify a use of force under that pre-authorization against Iran, North Korea, Russia, and China? Okay, so lots of legal questions there. A lack of information on operational partners, collateral effects, and metrics. Right? Early commentary has noted the difficulty in discerning when and how US Cybercom partners with other US military components, other US civilian agencies, foreign government, or private sector entities. Right? Relatedly, the current reporting framework fails to include any level of detailed reporting on post-operation collateral effects or metrics of operational success. Indeed, the uh, Cyberspace Solarium Commission that came out with its first report in March of 2020 and subsequent ones noted this problem and encouraged DOD, in light of the expanding cyber mission set, to assess the extent to which cyber campaigns and operations conducted in support of the Defend Forward strategy are achieving their intended effects. For example, the report suggested that they start gathering information about the direct and indirect cost imposed on adversaries and whether and how the cyber operations impacted adversary behavior. Final challenge, right? A lack of a public accountability check. Now recognizing these reports are gonna be classified for the most part, Right? And I have to say, my own efforts to confirm their occurrence of the briefings or submissions have come up short. My calls are not being answered um, at this point by the congressional committees or the Department of Defense. Okay? But we are lacking a way to know whether or not these reports are actually even occurring. Okay? So we've got an accountability check. Coupled with these gaps are a few more uh, structural challenges. First, we have a lack of prohibitive authorities. Right? There is no statute or executive order, for example, that flat out forbids the implanting of malware in industrial control systems associated with the electrical grid in a foreign country. Right? We have the authorizing authorities, but we don't have any prohibitions. So in essence, Congress in those early statutes gave the president a green light for the deployment of cyber capabilities. But the guardrails are not yet up on this cyber dirt road, so there's some work to be done. And it's important because as the US military starts to exercise these powers, which are important that we have, a key question will be whether or not Congress should impose restraints. 
And if Congress is unable to obtain the information it needs on the use and deployment of cyber capabilities, it will be difficult for Congress to assess if the lack of prohibitive guidance needs to be remedied. I don't think this one will come as a surprise to anyone. The committee structures, pretty disjointed, right? Uh, Carrie Cordero, a former government official, calls this the patchwork mismatch. There are no committees focused solely or entirely on cyber matters. Rather, oversight of cyber-related responsibility is spread all over the place, right? We've got the Senate and House committees on the judiciary consider issues relating to surveillance, cybercrime, and privacy. The Armed Services Committees consider the military's use of cyber capabilities for both offensive and defensive purposes. The Intelligence Committees focus on cyber capabilities for an intel gathering, right? They're all over the place. And indeed, I, I won't bore you by doing this, but uh, for the sake of my students, I went through just a four-month period from February to May of 2021 to look at every congressional hearing that had the word cyber in it. It is a stunning list and a stunning number of committees and subcommittees. It is touching everything. And so this is a problem, however, because it means Congress can't focus, right? Congress can't focus its efforts because it's disjointed and dispersed. Again, another shocker here, Congress is not known for its technological savvy, right? Or its cyber literacy. This lack of basic understanding, much less sophistication, right? We're not even hoping for sophistication. We're just talking basic understanding among members of Congress and their staffers is well-documented. Research into the skill sets and expertise of the relevant committee staffs demonstrates, quote, a serious dearth of technical expertise among the staffers and reveals staffers who are underwater when it comes poking into the nitty-gritty of cyber warfare. This challenge manifests in various ways, ranging from ridiculous questions at committee hearings, right, wavings of phones, as well, and more importantly, right, to adverse impacts on the substantive content of legislation that's passed. In addition, and relevant here, right, this lack of understanding significantly impairs the ability of Congress to engage in adequate oversight, right, thus adding another layer to the already knotty problem of uh, appropriate checking mechanisms. Finally, the last challenge is, is an important one to note. These reporting gaps and other oversight challenges are further aggravated by the necessarily stealthy features that characterize military cyber operations. These features hinder the usual checks of public debate and congressional approval, raising significant concerns about the vitality and adequacy of the current congressional oversight framework. We know this, right? In most instances, for a cyber operation to be effective, it needs to be secret. It needs to be concealed. It needs to happen at speed, right, with quick decision-making. As a result, the president and the executive branch more broadly exercise great discretion in this area. Okay, so we've got a problem. Take a moment just to look at this one. All right. <laughs> well, now you can really look at it, but I can't read my notes. <laughs> All right. So we have a problem. We have a separation of powers mismatch. Cyber capability and operations are critical to U.S. national security. Cyber operations are necessarily characterized by stealthy features. Right? Cyber capabilities need to be used in secret and at speed to be effective. As such, many, if not most, cyber operations will not be reported to congressional committees. 
and are even less likely to come to the attention of us in the public. Further, the small subset of cyber operations that are presented to the committees usually come after the event, right, in a post hoc review. Nonetheless, we know that our constitutional scheme anticipates some form of oversight, particularly with cyber operations because of their potential for significant catastrophic harm, both uh, intended and unintended, right? That's why we want to affirm the need for oversight. We have to acknowledge Congress may not be up to the task and the poking with the stick at the laptop, right? Put more bluntly, Congress is an inappropriate fit for effectively checking these new cyber authorities. So we have to look to alternatives, right? We have to consider what are the alternatives? What are these alternative mechanisms and entities that we can look to to address oversight and accountability gaps in the current framework? Again, to use another sports analogy, our starting lineup is injured and we need to go to the bench, right? We gotta find some substitute players. So let's shift that lens and call them oversight alternatives. And in thinking about oversight alternatives, it's helpful to consider this idea of the presidential synopticon. It's a concept Jack Goldsmith, who's a former government attorney and now Harvard Law professor, coined in his 2012 book called Power and Constraint about the accountable presidency. He focused on the need for a group of watchers, right, designed to check executive branch power and hold executive branch actors accountable in the context of many of the counterterrorism policies and programs that were developed in the wake of 9-11. Others have picked up on this concept as well, applying it to the intelligence setting. And so we've got some ideas here, right? We've got, obviously that was Congress, we've got the courts, the media, that's the White House Press Corps, Office of Legal Counsel, Office of General Counsel, JAG Corps, Google, right? Maybe NATO, some other foreign allies. So these are some of the ideas that have been proffered for uh, oversight alternatives. My proposition is that the Department of Defense Office of Inspector General needs to be added to this list. Actually, my proposition is even more forceful than that. Not only should the Department of Defense Inspector General be added, it is particularly well-suited and distinctively equipped to handle this task. And in describing the investigatory authorities and access that Congress gave inspector generals in that 1978 act, scholar Paul Light noted, the question was not if the inspector generals had the power, but whether they would use it. So let's turn now, right? So before we discuss the Department of Defense Inspector General specifically and catalog some of that office's unique contributions, I wanna give a brief primer on Inspector General position in our constitutional scheme and particularly in the military. Currently, there are 75 Inspector Generals in the United States government and more than 8,000 employees working in IG offices across the federal government. Their task is to serve, quote, as the principal watchdogs of the nation's federal agencies. And while the concept of independent auditors within the executive branch has existed since the founding of the country, right, the position was formalized in 1978 with the Inspector General Act, which you see President Carter has just signed there and is, is talking to other members of Congress. That act's interesting to note. Again, 1978, 
right? It fit into a group of legislative efforts, which were often framed as a, quote, busy season in the search for government accountability, right? Coming after some of the intelligence and military um, failings of the 1970s. The act came about in particular response to executive branch abuses, abuses and can be grouped with the War Powers Resolution, the Ethics and Government Act of 1978, the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978, and everyone's favorite, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. These statutes shared a common goal, or common goals. First, to ensure robust and accountable executive branch decision-making. Second, to increase transparency of executive branch decision-making. And third, to bolster Congress's access to information in the hands of those agencies. And to accomplish those objectives, Congress made independence the defining feature of the IG. Independence is integral to the statute's objective of increasing transparency and visibility, and it's reflected in the responsibilities Congress assigns to the Inspector General, most notably the dual reporting role. That's where the Inspector General has to report not only, right, to the agency head, but also to the relevant congressional committee. The IG has dual reporting responsibilities to both. In sum, Congress intended this position to be one of significant authority and structural independence. Scholars Margaret Gates and Marjorie Finols offer this observation. The IG is the only executive branch presidential appointee who speaks directly to Congress without getting clearance from the Office of Management and Budget. This ability to speak directly to Congress provides a potential source of substantial clout for the Inspector General. So let's turn now to talk a bit about the Department of Defense Inspector General. Now I play, uh, in a paper that I'm working on, on this topic, I play with the theme of watchdogs, right, um, junkyard dogs. And so when I get to the Department of Defense Inspector General, I talk about national security mutts. And I do so because the, the Department of Defense Inspector General has some powers that are greater than the other IGs, but also some limits on their powers that are less than the other inspector generals. In the early days of our nation, both military commanders and legislative bodies recognized the need for an inspector general. And in December of 1777, Congress created the inspector general of the army. From General Washington's perspective, such an agent was desirable because the inspector general could provide consistent discipline and ensure tactical competence. The Continental Congress also found the position desirable because it was a mechanism, one, for providing that body with important information, right, again, that idea that the IG can be a conduit of information to Congress relating to military operations, two, for tracking military spending and investments, IGs still serve that role today, and three, for providing assurances that the military would remain subordinate to civilian authority. The first Inspector General of the Army was Major General Thomas Conway, who resigned shortly after his appointment. This apparently was due to his inability to get along with anyone in the American Army, including General Washington. So the first effective <laughs> Inspector General of the US Army was Baron Frederick William Augustus von Steuben, pictured up here on the left. Von Steuben was a former captain in the Prussian army, and he was recruited for the American army by Benjamin Franklin while he was in Paris. And he reported to duty at Valley Forge in February of 1778. 
When he got there, he spoke no English, but learned quickly and impressed everyone with his hard work to improve the training, drills, discipline, and organization of the Continental Army. Not surprisingly, many of the Continental Army's colonels resented the efforts of Inspector General von Steuben, whose duties included to report all abuses, neglect, and deficiencies to the Commander-in-Chief. However, it was von Steuben's character, tact, and genius that overcame a great deal of this resistance. And as such, he's credited with setting the precedent for the manner and behavior for future Inspector Generals of the Army. Fast forward 200 years, we're no longer at Valley Forge, right? And it's 1982, and the Office of Inspector General within the Department of Defense is formally established. Right now, Sean O'Connell has been the acting Inspector General for the Department since April of 2020. When we get to q and I'm happy to talk a bit why he has that title, acting, right? And in addition to the department-wide um, inspector general, there's separate component-specific IGs for the Defense Intelligence Agency, National, Geospa National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NSA, and National Reconnaissance Office. Indeed, each of the services has an inspector general who's appointed by the secretary, and each of the combatant commands also has an inspector general. Having laid out the history and organization, let's turn now to a discussion of the traits that position the Inspector General so well for the cyber oversight task. First, a general alignment with public law values. As Ashley Deeks writes, a professor at the University of Virginia, accountability is a hallmark of democratic systems of government. In the national security setting, the relevant subset of public law values include legal compliance, competence and rationality, holding government decision makers accountable for the decisions they have made, demanding justifications for those decisions, and seeking transparency. These values, these public law values, are reflected in the IG's statutory mandate and its focus on providing independent advice and counsel. Second, this idea of a special perch and an investigatory toolkit. One of the chief advantages of inspector generals is that they are ideally situated to detect problems that would otherwise go undetected. And this ability derives from the special perch. They sit within their agencies. They have access to all information when they're conducting reports. Okay? They can go deep inside the presidency and the executive branch. But that special perch right, is also paired with an arsenal of information gathering tools designed to identify concerning, problematic, or abusive behavior. For example, inspections in the cyber context may assess whether the department's use of cyber authorities conform, conforms to the congressional authorization, whether such operations comply with approval requirements with uh, presidential and command directives, whether the congressional notices and briefings are actually occurring. they have the ability to balance secrecy with illumination. As we've talked about, for cyber operations to be effective, they often have to be secret and they have to occur at speed. That's the third characteristic that makes the Department of Defense Inspector General well-suited to this task, is the officer's ability to balance the government's legitimate need for secrecy with the public's interest in identifying wrongdoing. And indeed, as Professor Sharon Sinar of Stanford Law notes, IGs may be the most significant in areas where secrecy is the greatest. 
Fourth, IGs are often viewed as independent advisors. And this has been a growing role, again, trying to break through that myth of being counters and auditors. Right? The policy evaluator and advisor role is particularly critical in national security, law enforcement, and intelligence agencies. And inspector generals in these entities are uniquely positioned to influence the policy and the operations of that agency. Finally, and most importantly, right, IGs are well suited to the task because they can draw a roadmap for congressional committee attention and action. As noted in the sections above, right, go back to the slide of Congress poking the stick at the laptop, right, Congress is struggling to grasp the scope and scale of the executive branch's use of cyber operations. The DOG is able to gap fill here, right, through reports and testimony. I'll give you a few examples. DOD offers management, uh, annual management challenges report, annual oversight plan, semi-annual reports, and my favorite, the compendium of unimplemented recommendations, where they identify uh, things that they've recommended in the past that the department has not yet listened to or taken advantage of. A review of these reports shows Congress where to direct its sparse energy, in essence creating a roadmap for future legislative and oversight efforts. Thus, Congress can draw on the unsung surrogate, in this case the IGs, to uh, increase its own visibility into the executive branch's cyber operations. To get a fuller sense of the IG's contributions to the cyber oversight task, I'll just give you a few examples of it already exploring this, engaged in this effort. So this is a uh, report, an audit of the Department of Defense implementation of memorandums between DOD and Homeland Security regarding cybersecurity and cyberspace operations, right? Looking at deconfliction, right? A few others, right? We have an audit of US Combatant Command's offensive cyber operations. The objective of the audit is to determine whether US Combatant Command's planned and executed offensive cyberspace operations within the scope of their operational and contingency plans. We've got an audit of DOD's deconfliction of cyberspace operations to determine whether Cyber Command implemented processes to deconflict offensive and defensive cyberspace operations in accordance with policy. We've got an audit of combatant command training in a contested cyberspace environment, an audit of the DOD's implementation of other deconfliction policies. The list goes on. This brief review of recent Inspector General reports proves illuminating. It provides a sense of the breadth and depth of the Inspector General activities, as well as a roadmap for the work ahead. Although the office's contributions likely have gone unnoticed by most, and indeed I've received a fair amount of pushback on this idea that IGs can offer any guidance in this space, the employees in the Department of Defense Office of Inspector General have continued with their work quietly but thoroughly assessing and evaluating cyber operations and efforts and making recommendations for improvements both at the programmatic and larger strategic level. In conclusion, I want to return to my initial observation that the recent expansion of the U.S. government's cyber authorities and capabilities has coincided with a weakening and dispersion of the traditional congressional oversight mechanisms, creating that separation of powers mismatch. This mismatch inhibits Congress's ability to understand the use and deployment of these new cyber capabilities and obscures their use from the public as well. As we consider the proper mechanisms, the proper alternatives, 
due regard must be given to the government's need for concealment and secrecy, while also acknowledging justifiable concerns and the need for oversight. My work in this area joins others in recognizing that Congress's usual tools are not up to the task. And as we ponder whether cyber operations truly form a new constitutional category, we need to take note of the distinctive contributions of the Department of Defense Inspector General to the oversight ecosystem, contributions that acknowledge the government's interest while also appropriately limiting and guiding the use of these vast and consequential cyber capabilities. Thank you. All, all right, thank you so much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We have a few moments here for, uh, for question and answer. Uh, we do have a few questions coming in from, uh, from the internet here while uh, Mr. Giblin back there in the back gets ready to uh, see if we have any questions here. I'm gonna go ahead and get started uh, with a question from our online audience. This is coming from one of the War College students. Uh, they're interested to know if you can speak at all about the reports that come out of US Cybercom uh, that they provide to the armed services committees after each cyber operation. Is there anything you can tie into what you spoke about as far as that's concerned? Sure. No, that's actually been one of my challenges is trying to figure, trying to get the reports. So I don't, I don't have one yet. And, and that makes sense um, because often they're classified. I will say Congress in the last Defense Authorization Act, though, uh, put in place a requirement that there is supposed to be an unclassified appendix accompanying some of these reports. Um, so I'm actually looking right now and reaching out to uh, the Armed Services Committees in both chambers for copies of those unclassified appendix. They do not seem to be available on their website um, or through other means. And so I'm working on, on figuring out how to get copies on that. Um, but it's back to that, uh, my concern at least, that there's a lack of a public accountability check. We can't actually tell if the reporting that's required is even happening at this point. All right, do we have any questions here in the crowd? We have one over there in the corner. Uh, I saw a C-130 in that picture. Can that C-130 get off the ground without parts made in foreign countries? <laughs> um, I, I think I'm gonna defer that question to, uh, to others or we can talk after and you can probably educate me. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we had another question down there, down there in front. And there's down another there one up front. front. Hey, thank you for your time, ma'am. Uh, great overview. Uh, Tan Colonel Jamel Neville from, um, from um, War College as well. I come from Cybercom. Has two years working both sides, offense and defense. So, uh, I'm referring to the U.S. Uh, cyberspace Solarium uh, that was uh, released. So, uh, with with two uh, uh, representatives, uh, you know, leading that effort, it almost uh, maybe sounds like uh, they acknowledge that you know Congress needs some uh, some reforms, if you will. So, and then they outline some pretty uh, aggressive steps, acknowledging speed and agility. Um, so, can you kind of speak to far as their efforts from the standpoint of far as one acknowledging, uh, you know, the, the shortfalls, the gaps that you outlined there? And, and, and two, maybe the value, at least from how I read the solarium, solarium that they're, they're, they're almost, you know, delegating or free, or at least empowering or want to continue to empower, you know, uh, leaders like General Nakasone to continue to, uh, uh, you know, do what he needs to do and, you know, with some, with some autonomy. Thanks. Yeah. Great question, thank you. Um, so first of all, for those who may not be familiar, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission was actually a commission 
appointed by a prior um, National Defense Authorization Act, and it had a number of representatives from uh, Congress as well as the private sector and elsewhere. And so it came out with its report um, actually in March of 2020, um, right before I was actually supposed to go down for the, uh, the release of it and uh, then decided not to travel uh, for obvious reasons that, that week. But I will say, I think the, the commission has done an outstanding job with that first report, but if you actually go on their website, if you're interested in this, they have continued to publish reports and updates. And what they've done that I think is distinctive, and you point to, they haven't only identified the problems, which they do quite thoroughly, they actually have proposed solutions, including draft legislation, in many instances, to try and address some of the challenges. Um, the, the Solarium Commission report is aligned along uh, various pillars and, and recommendations. I think they get to 80-something recommendations in all, but they have several that are specific to Congress and the congressional committee structure. And so what they would like to see, the commission recommends actually taking, you know, getting rid of all those committees that I talked about and having two new committees that are purely cyber-focused and that would actually address both the offensive and defensive sides of the House we can put for a later discussion whether or not you can actually distinguish the offensive and defensive sides of the house, um, but, but to put them there. So that's one of their recommendations. Uh, I'll be curious to see where that goes. I think inertia might just make that, that too difficult to accomplish. But their other recommendation was that the executive branch needed to clean up its cyber structure as well, and they, um, one of the recommendations has already been in place, the appointment of a national cyber director. And so I think uh, that, that will take, uh, that will be uh, important to follow how that uh, works out. Um, but, but yeah, I think they, they uh, have identified a number of challenges and I am very interested in some of the flaws that they've pointed out in the oversight mechanism as well, but balancing that with exactly what you said, creating enough space for Cyber Command to do the work that it needs to do. I call this the naughty, <laughs> naughty K, not naughty, naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y problem with cyber because you want to give that flexibility, but you also want to maintain some level of oversight. We do. We have another uh, series of questions that came in from the internet uh, as you were speaking, and it was interesting. You, it was almost you had telepathy with them or something because you answered most of their questions as they asked them. Um, but one one theme that uh, that did come out of that 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 uh, I'm pulling together from some of these questions is you mentioned disjointed and dispersed committees uh, in in the issue that that uh, with that that aspect of the oversight. And then you talked about the inspector general. Do you see this being fixed? Are we moving in the right direction with the IG? Or do you see a, a long-term issue here that, that this isn't really getting fixed over time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the like getting the committee structure right, it's gonna take some time. And so part of the solution that I'm offering is that the inspector general actually can be uh, very effective in focusing the committees, how they currently exist, in what really needs um, attention and providing that roadmap, right? They could identify, hey, we're having some deconfliction problems, right? Uh, the intel and, and uh, you know, offensive operation sides of the house aren't, um, aren't talking as much as they should, or, or hey, we're having funding problems, right, as well, or staffing problems, and the inspector general is well situated to identify those issues and then take them to Congress. Uh, one of the challenges with being the inspector general, I didn't include this in the talk tonight, is that they are advisory only. Right? They don't have implementation uh, capabilities. I actually think that is more of a feature than a bug 
in that the inspector generals, when they're looking at a problem, aren't worried about articulating what the solution is. And so they're not pre-designing the problem in a way to get to the solution that they want. Instead, they're identifying the problem and then they should take it to the correct political actors, right, to remedy it. Hey, thank you, Amy. This is uh, Chad Bates from Army War College. So, really like your foundational type thing. So, I think another foundational thing that I think it really contributes to it, and, and I think you might address it, but in, in, our, in our legal authorities, in, in the legal documents, we've well-defined air, land, and maritime. And we even got into space. There's, there's, there's U.S. and international laws that, that cover that. But when it comes to the internet, the cyber domain, it's very ill-defined. And you think is that is a, a hindrance to Congress to really go through because it's something that's not well-defined internationally, and especially not within the, in the United States. So is, do you think that uh, applies to that? And I'm, I'm going to have a follow-on question, so I'll hold on to it. So what's your opinion on that one? Yeah, and I think jurisdictionally, right, some, a question like that probably belongs better with the um, Department of General Counsel right, in the Department of Defense, because it's getting into the international law space. But uh, to your larger point, that, that's one of the huge challenges with cyberspace, is it also comes up against sovereignty issues, right? For so many of our uh, military doctrines and legal authorities, they have territorial boundaries that help us understand, right, the rules of engagement. Otherwise, cyberspace doesn't have that. Um, and so I think the, uh, the U.S. military is working through that. Um, I think U.S. legal scholars are working through that. And I think the international legal community is really struggling uh, to define that, right? We've got this um, a, uh, bevy of uh, announcements by various uh, legal uh, advisors from the State Department, the Department of Defense, most recently Paul Nye, if any of you were at the Cybercom legal conference back in 2020, right, where he's saying, okay, international law applies in cyberspace, and that's important that we've said that, but what does that actually mean? And so that's what I think is, is starting to be worked out there. All right, so, so, so follow-on question that one. So in your hypothesis and your, your recommendations, the uh, DODIG, I mean, you know, John Locksoni earlier this year when he reported to Congress is like, you know, some of the attacks that our adversaries did on us, they tunneled through the dark web and popped out on an IP server within the United States. So the enemy understands the boundaries of our executive branch. So, you know, it's like, is that Department of Homeland Security? Is that FBI? Because that's definitely out of General Nakasone's purview. <laughs> um, so that, do you think, I mean, we can identify, we just identify the problem, but how would DODIG actually help understand that using different uh, organizations in the U.S. government to accomplish that? Yeah, actually, another piece that, that I've looked at is looking at the inspector generals in Department of Homeland Security in uh, IG and um, for the intelligence community to see if they're collaborating, right, on precisely those issues. Because I think there is, it's not a turf battle, it's more a question of who's responsible for which networks within the U.S. government, and then who's responsible for private sector networks, um, and how does that, how does that, um, how do the authorities respond to that? Because right now the authorities are very much tied to where the breach occurs, and that may not be the most effective way to respond. Right. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. 
To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.